I am premiering a brand new Bible today. Brand new Bible because it's an NIV translation. It's a good preaching Bible. But I noticed on the box yesterday that it's called Comfort Print. Comfort Print. I'm supposed to take comfort that I'm getting older and my eyes are getting weaker. This is not large print. It's comfort print. That makes me feel more comfortable. But we're going to take some comfort from the Word of God today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13 and learning a lot about the mission of the church and our mission and what God's church looks like. Have you ever been on a mission trip? Have you ever been on like a one-week or two-week mission trip, maybe overseas, possibly local missions trip? Uh, this week, this week would have normally have been a trip for Pastor Jeff to go to Moldova. 17, 18 years, something like that. He would have been over there for July, but COVID, COVID unfortunately, shut down all those incredible mission trips. But guess what? Because of Justice Mercy International, that didn't stop the mission of God. That didn't stop the church. They are still actively serving the staff here, the church supporting, and they have local, local staff who is reaching Brazil and reaching Moldova. We're excited about that. Uh, my first endeavor, my first venture into missions was into the inner city of Nashville. That was pretty eye-opening. As a Belmont religion major, uh, we had an inner city pastor from Chicago come in one day. He gathered up all these uh, religion majors in this little room, small little group of us. He shared about the inner city. And I was clueless. I I'd never heard of the inner city before. I did not know what it was. And after explaining the inner city and the needs about that and talked about white flight and bright flight, then he challenged us. He said, put feet to your faith and just give God one day. One day in the inner city of Nashville. Go work with kids or people without homes. Go work with uh, single mothers. Go work with some church or some mission center. Just give God one day. And all these white, white religion majors are like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll do it. Kind of forgot about it. The next week, fellow religion major came up to me and said, Patrick, remember that put feet to your faith one day? I was like, oh yeah. He goes, well, tomorrow we're going into the James Casey homes. We're going to do door-to-door -door visitation. Why don't you come? And I said yes before my mind could say, no, 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 what are you doing? Oh, no, you just said yes. You're seriously about to go door-to-door -door visitation in the James Casey homes. I was scared. All I knew of the inner city was movies, New Jack City, Boys in the Hood, Colors, even I'm going to get you, sucker. That's all I knew about the inner city, and I'm thinking it's about gangbangers and drive-bys and murder and theft and, and drug dealers, and I'm scared. I'm scared, so I had to prepare that night. I seriously did this. I had to prepare. I took my wallet and I pulled everything important out of my wallet and I made a dummy wallet. I made a dummy wallet in my back right pocket. And in there, I just had like two bucks, two bucks, a bunch of credit card receipts, an expired Blockbuster video membership and a library card. Because if they steal my wallet, hopefully they go check out some books and read. I hope they would do that. But in my left pocket, I had my health insurance card in case I needed to be treated for a stab wound. I wanted to have that, like seriously. And I had my driver's license because I wanted to help the police so that they could make that phone call, which I thought very well could happen. If they call, they're like, sorry, Mr. Hamilton, your son, yeah, he went door to door visiting in the projects and now he's dead. And now he's dead. I was preparing. I got the biggest hardback Bible I had on my shelf. And this Bible is the sword of the Spirit, right? This Bible was going to be used to knock the knife out of someone's hand or a gun or maybe block a bullet, like I'd be fast enough to do that. And it was the one that had the Apocrypha in it, so it had extra pages of protection to keep me safe from that. And here I go. We are heading. My friends picked me up the next day. I'm prepared. I almost like wrote out my will. Uh, and then as we're driving, I'm thinking, dummy wallet, hardback Bible, dummy wallet, hardback Bible. We're heading towards the Casey Homes, the largest government housing project in Nashville. And I start looking in the car. There's four religion majors in the car. And I start thinking, oh, 
well, I'm faster than these other guys, so I think I'll be all right. I can outrun. I'll do it. Get to the mission center, Woodcock Baptist Church Mission Center. The director prays over us, and just like Jesus did, right, she sends it out, sends us out two by two, and I'm thinking, well, for a witness or maybe protection, or I got to outrun this other guy. We go two by two, knocking on doors, knocking on doors, and when I go into the projects, I didn't see the gang members. I didn't see the drug dealers. What I saw were kids, kids upon kids upon kids everywhere, and kids running up to me, a complete stranger. They're like, what are you doing? Where are you going? What's that book? You got any candy? You got any candy? They're sticking their hand in my pocket. I'm like, I'm sorry, kid. I don't have candy, but I got a dummy wallet. I was just so, so like mad at myself that I didn't bring a children's Bible. I brought this stupid apocrypha hardback Bible. I should have brought a children's Bible. I sit down. Kids are on my lap. Kids are touching my hair. They're jumping up, just starving for my attention. And I open the inside cover. I'm like, what do I do? Uh, All right. And I draw like an outline of a fish and I put a stick figure in it because it's a limitation of my artistic skills. I'm like, uh, yeah, Jonah. And I tell the story of Jonah and the great fish and how that points to Jesus. And then after we leave the kids, me and my partner, we start knocking on doors. Most of the doors open. And I wonder what those mothers and grandmothers thought as these two white 20-year-olds are standing there. I mean, because we don't look like cops. They may not know who we are, but most of the time they open the door. And then we'd invite them to a Wednesday Bible study and a Wednesday luncheon at the mission center. Please come to this. We'd love to have you there. And then we'd say, is there anything we could pray about? And then the mothers, the grandmothers, the guard would, would let down and they'd share their prayer requests for the violence of the neighborhood, for they were underemployed or they were unemployed or for their son who was incarcerated or their teenage son they're now worried about because he's starting to run on those streets. Uh, really concerned about that. And then we would, we would pray. We would pray. And nine out of 10 times we would say, amen. We looked up, they're wiping tears from their eyes. And I came to realize it didn't take a big plan. It didn't take any training. It didn't take a big anything. It just took putting feet to faith knocking on the door and saying, can I pray for you? And God showed up and touched those women's lives. That led to me to spend eight years in the projects of Nashville, which uh, was just a highlight of my life, and I loved it. What we are going to see today about the church's mission and how we are all on mission. We are all to put feet to our faith. Acts chapter 13 is a big moment, big moment in the church because this is the first time that foreign overseas missionaries are sent. A local church sends two off as their representatives supporting them and missions, overseas missions begins. And I'm going to read verses one through three here. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. There's five leaders of this church here. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. What I love here is in the leadership of the church, there's diversity. There's diversity in the early church, the church of Antioch here with this. Barnabas, he's a Levite from Cyprus. And it makes sense that's where they're going to go when they're sent out. Cyprus is not too far away. A Levite from Cyprus. A Simeon from North Africa. He's called uh, Niger, which means he is from a North African country. Uh, Then you have Lucius from a North African country because he's from Cyrene. And that bordered the Mediterranean Sea in North Africa. Um, Manaean, foster brother of a Palestinian ruler's family. He was brought up in Herod the Great's household. Remember Herod the Great? and baby Jesus and all that. Well, Herod the Great's son is who Manan was raised with, and what a contrast, what a difference. You have Herod Antipas, who put John the Baptist to death, 
and was part of the trial of Jesus. Manan, raised in the same household, faithful follower of Jesus, leader of the church. And this beautiful diversity, it surrounds the Mediterranean Sea from North Africa and Ireland. And you have Saul from Tarsus. They're just kind of surround the whole island here. Boy, I wish, I wish more and more churches were like Antioch and had more and more diversity and a diversity in the leadership. Well, the Antioch church, they lay hands on Barnabas and Saul after receiving the word from the Lord here. And this displays that they are being sent as their representatives. They're being sent with their blessing. And notice they are willing to give up two of their very influential and important leaders to go, to go. And Barnabas and Saul What they are doing here is, and what's happening here is this is a pivotal moment in the life of the church because they are fulfilling Jesus' words. This is the first time Jesus' words are being fulfilled back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said to the church, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and what? To the ends of the earth. This is the beginning of the ends of the earth as the two are going on overseas missions by that local church. And notice Barnabas and Saul, they go willingly. What did the Holy Spirit say? Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. There's not a job description. There's not an itinerary. There's not a map to follow. There's not a timeline. And Paul and Barnabas, Paul, Saul and Barnabas are not like, well, Lord, how long? Uh, where are we going to be going? What are the people going to be like? What are we going to eat? How are we going to be supported? They just go. They just go. It takes an adventurous step of faith, an adventurous putting their feet to faith, trusting the Holy Spirit will lead them along the way, and yet they go. And I want us to realize that the church's mission displayed here, and they send the two off, two influential leaders of the church. The church's mission at Antioch continued even when Barnabas and Saul were sent off because we are all on mission. The church's mission does not replace your individual mission. You are all missionaries. Everyone here, everyone here who trusts in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are all ministers, and you are all sent. You are all part of a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God to be used by Him in His kingdom-building activity. Jesus has these words to say to us, right? All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. He's Lord. He's King. He has all the authority, and he says this. He says, go make disciples of all nations. The king says, go. The Lord says, go. I think we should go. I think we should go, right? And he says, go, and it's just like, make disciples. Go make faithful believers, faithful followers of Jesus. So when he says, go, it doesn't mean go overseas. It's great to do that. It doesn't mean go once a week, you know, for one week each summer. It means as you are going, wherever you are, wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you play, wherever you shop, you are to be a part of making disciples, building this relationship with others, and sharing the gospel. And he says here, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, adding them to the church. They are saved, now they're demonstrating that, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. It's not just getting them wet. It's not just getting them in the church. It's not about having baby Christians. It's to raise them up. Life on life. We all have a responsibility for that, to help raise people up in the faith, to grow them in the faith, to become more and more faithful followers of Jesus who then will go do as you have done, which someone did for you as well. Grow them up in the faith. And Jesus says, and surely I'm with you always, to the very end of the age. He says, go, and I'm going with you. 
The king's going with you through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. I want us to watch a video from Don and Cynthia Storrs of our Nolensville campus. They were missionaries for 25 years in Belgium and in France, 25 years. And the Lord used them to plant and help grow a church in Belgium, which is the largest evangelical church in Belgium. The mega church in Belgium, an evangelical church, has 160 people. That will tell you how difficult, how hard of a place it is to do ministry in Belgium, but yet that is where they ministered and the Lord used them. I'd like us to hear their story and how it encourages us about the Great Commission and Paul. Well, we are Don and Cynthia Storrs, and uh, we're here in Nolensville, and we attend a local campus here. I think really in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a movement, you know, the Jesus Freak movement, but that was how we came to the Lord. And then eventually hearing about Europe, right. we felt like the, those people are just like us. They Correct. think they know God, but they, they really only know a shadow. I know crisis needed throughout the world, but that's probably the most unreached continent, as prolific as it may be. We initially went to the French-speaking side of Belgium. We were the only people of faith in our community, and we were a faith that was generally persecuted by the, the majority faith that was there. It's really wonderful to try to mesh with those in the, in the community mm -hmm. and their activities. And I was very fortunate. I had not played a trombone since my high school days, and yet I brought it with me. Why, I have no idea why, until my son's saxophone teacher saw a trombone sitting up in my in our house, and he said, who's trombone? He was daddy's. And so he asked me if I wanted to play in a, a, Tommy, a Tom, Tommy, uh, Tom, Tommy Dorsey, Tommy big, Dorsey band. big band song. Big band. I said, yeah, I'll give it a shot. I did it, I did it for three years. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, through that, I had an opportunity to uh, get to know these men and a few ladies in the program. And it was really a great opportunity and I had a chance to share our faith with them. I think about Paul and he used what he had as a bridge to the community. He was a trained teacher. He knew the Jewish law really well. So he ended up going first to the synagogues, you know, go with what you have. Um, I ended up doing a lot of teaching because I was a teacher, um, English as a second language. So just that idea of what is it you have in your hand? People ever thinking, well, I could never do that. Anything that is needed here in any occupation is needed overseas. And there's always a place that people can serve. We need to recognize our, the potential relationships with people in our community. And when we moved here to our, our home areas nearby, uh, we made it a point to try to meet the, those in our, our surrounding community. And uh, that's all it is. We, st we may start off small, but we're looking forward to de developing and enhancing that relationships. We send, we support missionaries. We're all on mission as well, even in the communities. They're not, they didn't leave the mission field. It's continued, right? Year 30, 35, whatever they are. They're continuing to be on missions. We're going to see here in uh, verses 4 through 12 of chapter 13 that when we share the gospel, there's always results. Sharing the gospel always has results. Let's read together here, verses 4 through 7. The two of them, of course, this is now Barnabas and Saul, they're sent. Sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. That's where Barnabas was from. 
Makes sense. Hey, let's go where I'm from. Uh, when they had arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of the Lord in the Jewish synagogues. It's typically where Saul or Paul would always go to the Jewish people first. Uh, the Messiah, promised one, came from the Jewish people. He would always give them the first opportunity. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. So this is, they traveled about 90 miles from west to east. They didn't just hop on the interstate, right? They didn't just book it going 90 miles per hour. No one, please don't drive 90 miles per hour. But they didn't go, there's no interstate. They would have walked and spent the night. I'm sure they are preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel along the way. But they're going to, from major city to major city to plant the gospel, plant churches and radiate out from there. There they met at Paphos, a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, the governor, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of the Lord. He wanted to hear this. Sergius Paulus, the Roman governor, sends for Barnabas and Saul. He's an intelligent man. He's a spiritual man. He wants to hear this new message. He's trying to hedge his bets. He's probably dabbling in different kinds of oracles and in different religions. And he wants to hear this new religion or this new message. He wants to hear the word of the Lord. But Bar-Jesus, Bar-Jesus, which means, his name means son of salvation, we're going to see he is no son of salvation at all. He's a false prophet. He's a charlatan. He's a trickster. He would probably offer his services here to the governor to kind of foresee, foretell future events using pseudoscience and stuff just to be in there good with the governor and, uh, and with this. And we're going to see that he's going to try to stop the gospel, try to stop that gospel. Let's we'll see how it goes for him uh, when he has this confrontation here. But, uh, and his name also means is Elimus, meaning he's a sorcerer. Verse 8, but Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, that is where a transition is going to happen. Saul had a Hebrew name and he had another name, Paul, for a Roman name. When he goes into Roman areas, he starts going by Paul. In the Jewish areas, he went by Saul. From now on, he's referred to as Paul for the rest of the book of Acts until he talks about his conversion. Saul, Saul, why did you persecute me when he met the Lord? But here we go with Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus, the charlatan, the trickster, the supposed son of salvation, and he said, when it says here he looked straight at them, another translation says he fixed his gaze upon him. What this means is, is that Paul gave Bar-Jesus the stink eye. He gave him the stink eye. Anyone ever given the stink eye? Have you ever received the stink eye? Have you ever received it? I'm glad there's some laughter. I've received the stink eye. I'm not naming any names, but I've received the stink eye, which is that like, you're dead to me. Uh, I can't believe you just did that. I am so mad at you right now. And that is what Paul does here, right at bar Jesus. But it's the power of the Holy Spirit, not the stink eye, that does this next year. And this is what he says. And I love how he does the little spin on Bar-Jesus' name. Verse 10, you are a child of the devil. You're not a son of salvation, you're a son of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, laying down traps and trying to trap people. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun and the Holy Spirit here immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about
about the Lord, about the Lord. It wasn't the stink eye. It was the Holy Spirit that temporarily blinded the son of the devil, uh, bar Jesus here, because he's a blind guide. He's blinded in a sense. Maybe like Paul, maybe Paul is kind of hoping here as well that just like as he was blinded temporarily and led to his faith, uh, maybe that would happen to bar Jesus. We don't know, but he is temporarily blinded. But the Roman governor, the Roman governor is impressed, not with the blinding, not with the blinding. The blinding was a bit of a power and evidence that the words of Paul were true. But what he is amazed at is this, the teaching about the Lord. He receives the gospel. He trusts in Jesus. He believes. And praise God, the mighty work of God here at this moment is not that a false prophet was blinded. It's that the Roman governor became a Christian. Praise God, what impact that could happen for that city and that area. The word of God went forth and a governor believes. And it's amazing at that moment here. When we share the gospel, we need to realize that sharing the gospel always has results. There's always has results. Probably the majority of the time when you share the gospel, there's an indifference. Uh, The person's not opposing you or anything, but they're just kind of indifferent. They're like, that's nice for you. That's wonderful for you. I'm glad that's the way you see things. And, but it, just, it doesn't really penetrate their heart or their mind, but it's nice for you. It's nice for you that you believe in Jesus or are so active in church, but they just don't kind of get it. But it doesn't cause any offense. But all, other times when you share the gospel, someone could oppose it. That's what Bar-Jesus did. Oppose that gospel. Uh, that could definitely happen in other countries where the Christian faith, where the church is persecuted, like big-time opposition. Here in the United States... We're so blessed. We're so blessed. Why don't we share more, right? But here, maybe, maybe someone gets some, uh, starts an argument or a discussion uh, about, well, how do you know there is a God? Or, or what about all these other religions? Or has something to say about certain passages of Scripture? What about the, the Noah's Ark, the Great Flood? What about creation? It tries to get you off track in those areas, try to get you off of just sharing the gospel and sticking with Jesus and Jesus' story in your life and that. Maybe a little bit of opposition, but of course it can lead to acceptance, like the Roman governor, acceptance and what fruit that produces. And that's what we're always hoping for. But I believe what happens with us is we need to realize this. We are responsible to share. We're responsible to share. We're not responsible for the results. We have no power over the results, but we are responsible to share. But I think sometimes we think of or focus too much on the possible results that we don't know, therefore we don't share. We don't share because of maybe the results that will take place. Well, what if they stump me with the question? I I don't want to hurt our friendship. What if I offend them? What if they get mad at me? So we don't know what the results are going to be, so we hold back. We don't share the gospel. What does Jesus say? He says, go make disciples of all nations, right? Uh, We need to trust the message. We leave the results to Jesus. We leave the results to the Holy Spirit. We're not in charge of that at all. We don't save anybody. Sow the seeds of the gospel lavishly. Waste grace, if you will, if you can do such a thing. Just give grace and give love and spread that gospel and trust God with the results of that. Now we have the church's message, which is the gospel, in verses 13 through 52, which I'm not going to cover all of that. I want to sum it up here in a moment, but I want us to see that here they set off again. I'm going to read verses 13 through 16. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. We don't know why John left, but John, he gone. He gone for some reason, and it'll, it'll work out later on. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. Here's that pattern again. uh, Jesus came 
Jesus, the Messiah, came from the Jewish people, Paul always gives an opportunity for the Jewish people first. They sit down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, that's what they do. They read from the law. They also read from the prophets. And now the volunteer kind of leader would ask for someone to preach because they'd expound on that. And he sees here that Paul is with them and Barnabas. The leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Please teach. Please speak about the law and the prophets that we just read. Boy, Paul was an expert in that, right? But now he sees Jesus, 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 Jesus all throughout it. Standing up, it's like they had a pulpit. Paul motioned with his hands. I guess he preached a lot, moved a lot, a lot of hand moment, maybe beat on the pulpit. I don't know. He motions with his hands. He says, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God. There's the, there's the Jewish people and there's Gentiles who haven't converted, but yet they're familiar with the scriptures. He says, who worship God? Listen to me. Listen to me. And then he starts to sum up in verses 17 through 37, the mighty works of God displayed through Israel. The grace upon grace upon grace upon God, from God choosing Israel, although Israel was a nobody, uh, to growing Israel, delivering them from Egypt, giving them the promised land, giving them judges, giving them kings, giving them the king, King David, who was given a promise that one from him, a descendant of him, would have a kingdom that would last forever, whose throne would not come to an end. And then he says, all of that powerful grace of God, all of God's grace, all of it through Israel, pointed to Jesus. The promised Savior has arrived. The descendant of David, the Savior has come. And it all led to Jesus. And then this leads him to sharing the gospel. The gospel are in verses 38 through 39, summed up here beautifully by Paul. And he has an appeal for them to believe. Therefore, my friends, after summing it all up here, he's explaining the gospel. I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Forgiveness of sins, amazing, that which separates us from God, that is forgiven is washed away. We can now have that forgiven, that debt washed away because of Jesus. We're set free from every sin. That means not just the little sins or the big sins. It means every sin. We're free. We're free of the consequences of those sins or the, uh, of being shut out of God's kingdom. We are free of sin's power. Sin has no more control or mastery over us, and we're free to not go back. We don't have to sin we can now live righteously in a right relationship with God, all because of Jesus. And through Jesus, Paul likes using this word justification a lot. It's a beautiful word. I'm going to explain it here what this justification is. Justification is that God as judge looks at a guilty person, guilty, guilty of treason, guilty of rebellion in my kingdom. You're guilty. You're guilty. You're worthy of punishment. What is a treasonous person worthy of? Death, absolutely worthy of death, but declares that guilty person just or right or good, not because of anything within that guilty person, but because of Jesus, because of Jesus, all because that guilty person cried out for mercy and said, I trust in Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. And a great exchange happens at that moment. The guilt 
the sin, the separation, that which is worthy of death, the treason goes on to Jesus and Jesus dies. Dies on the cross. Jesus died on the cross for that guilty person. And Jesus gives in return a right standing with the Father. A right relationship with God which results in a right relationship with others. All because of Jesus. Justified. Justified the gospel in that. I hope you are all trusting in the gospel. And this is for everyone, not just for the Jews. It's for everyone who believes in Jesus. They're all justified. This is for Jew and Gentile. This is for any, a male and female. This is for slave or free. This is for anyone, regardless of their social standing or socioeconomic standing. All who believe in Jesus, right relationship with God, justified, justified. And then he gives a warning. He gives a warning because he knows, he knows what can happen after this gospel goes forth. Some might oppose it. He gives that warning in verses 40 through 41. Take care that what the prophets has said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if I had told you. Paul warns them to believe, not to disbelieve. Don't be like Israel back in the day that disbelieved God and was judged by God. Believe in God's grace. Believe in God's mighty justification through Jesus here. And there's an excitement. There's a buzz in the synagogue from Paul's message from the gospel. And they're encouraging him, come back next week. Want to hear more of this next week. And apparently the Gentiles take off. The Gentiles who understood the Hebrew Scriptures, they take off and they go to their friends, they go to their neighbors, they go to the people they work with, and they start sharing this message. And they want, they're inviting them to come to the synagogue next week to hear more of this message, more of this. They're basically saying, you know, come on, come hear this salvation offered to us, and we can still eat bacon, we think. So come on, come on and hear of this. And then the next week, the synagogue's packed, standing room only. And the longtime members show up. Their seat's taken. Uh, if, they, if they had parking spaces, they're taken outside, right? As well, it's standing room only. And the seats aren't taken by a lot of Jewish people. And they're not even taken by the Gentiles they're familiar with who are kind of studying the Scriptures they hope were converted. No, it's taken by the whole city here. Let's look here in verses 44 through 47 because the seats are taken not, it's taken by the far from God, far from the grace of God, non-chosen, non-special, uncircumcised, pig-eating Gentiles are all in their synagogue. And we're going to learn here that in God's kingdom and from the power of the gospel, that racism absolutely has no place in the church. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city, that's a big crowd, a bunch of Gentiles gathered to hear the gospel, the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. And Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, the Jewish leaders. We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The gospel shined and it exposed the sin of racism there in that synagogue, in that gathering of people. Uh, 
And Paul's reminding him that Israel was to be a means of God's salvation. Israel is to be a light to the world. God showcased people, but yet they kept the light to themselves. They did not reach out to the world. They were not there for the sojourner and the foreigner. They weren't really caring for the vulnerable society, the widows and the orphans. They were really just caring for self and protecting self and keeping salvation to self. And they viewed Gentiles as unclean, unworthy. They had no use for a gospel that offers salvation to Gentiles on the same term as Jews. It's okay. They would think maybe it's okay to come to Jesus, but you got to become a Jew first. Don't eat this, eat that. Don't do this on certain days. And men, you got to be circumcised. They had nothing to do with a gospel that accepted all people, regardless of distinction. The grace of God was too gracious for them. The love of God was too great. And they're rejecting it. Most are rejecting that. Racism is ugly. And racism has absolutely no place in the church. Because it goes against the word of God. It goes against the very beginning when God created us in his image after his likeness all of humanity all humanity is worthy of love in that it goes against the word of god that jesus uh, that he gave his son jesus for the entire world because he loved the world so much he gave his one and only son having spent eight years in the projects of nashville and two and a half years in birmingham i've seen the effects of racism uh, firsthand and i've seen the hardship of generational poverty Uh, I've seen the hardship of drugs. I've seen the hardship of absentee a mother or father in there who can't take care of their child and what that does for the next generation. That door-to-door visitation in the Casey homes led me to committing to eight years in the projects of Nashville and working in ministry. I spent two years in the Casey homes working for that little Baptist mission center, and my church supported me in that. And a few days before Christmas one year, the director, Linda Knott, of the Woodcock Baptist Mission Center asked me, if I would help this family coming from the suburbs take Christmas to Teresa at her apartment. And I knew Teresa. I knew Teresa because she was coming to that Wednesday Bible study. She was coming to that Wednesday um, luncheon faithfully. Teresa was one of our most faithful uh, ladies who would attend. Uh, Very sweet, very kind, and she was always willing to help. She would help afterwards clean up, even though she was missing half of her arm. And finally, when I had a good enough relationship with Teresa, I had asked her, what had happened to her arm. And she explained to me that an ex-boyfriend tried to kill her in a fire. And, the, and she had to have half of her arm amputated after that fire. Just horrible, horrible, but yet so committed to coming to this. And she'd always bring her little four-year-old daughter. And that winter, her four-year-old daughter had a winter coat that was two sizes too big. You couldn't see her hands because the sleeves were so long. The hood was up. You couldn't see her face. I had to lean down and wave at her like, hi, how are you? I'm so glad you're here. And she had a cute little smile, but she never talked. Very shy, probably because of what she had been through. So the family arrives in the suburbs with a van load full of presents and groceries and a hot ham and sides to provide Christmas for Teresa and her daughter. And they follow me to Teresa Street. I help them carry this arm load of all of these presents and all these groceries and food. And I knock on Teresa's door and Teresa opens the door and she immediately starts crying. And she starts saying, praise God, praise God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And she is crying and she invites us quickly to come into her apartment. I've been in a lot of apartments in the Casey homes, but I had not seen one like this. Literally every single cupboard had no food, no food in the cabinets, 
No food in the refrigerator. These are the only groceries that were being brought in. You see it was towards the end of the month and our food stamps had run out. There was mildew in the corners of the wall. No, hardly any furniture in our apartment, no television, not much furniture, but yet in the corner was a little artificial Christmas tree that was propped up in the corner because the base was broken but was leaning in the corner. And Teresa went on to explain as we're unloading the groceries and the hot meal, and, the, and she's pointing proudly to the tree for the presents to go underneath that tree. She said that the night before, the night before we arrived, she was crying and couldn't go to sleep. She was crying and she was so upset that she could not provide Christmas for her daughter. And she started praying to God. And God spoke. She heard the word of the Lord. God said this to her, get up, get ready. Christmas is coming. She did, and she even got her little daughter up. She got her up and they, and they cleaned their apartment the best that they could. And as they were taking the trash to the dumpster, she saw the artificial Christmas tree in the dumpster. And she pulled it up and she brought it into her apartment and propped it up and they went to bed expecting and trusting the word of the Lord that Christmas was coming. And Christmas came. And Christmas came. And as she is still hugging me and thanking God and praising God and thanking the family and hugging us all, she's crying and I start to cry. And I start to cry not out of happiness, not out of a joy. I start to cry a bit of an ugly cry because I'm angry. I'm angry because I know that Teresa has AIDS and it's advancing. I'm angry because I know Child Protective Services is close to removing her daughter from her home. I am angry that very likely this is her last Christmas on earth and her last Christmas with her daughter. And it's a food stamp of a Christmas that the church provided for her. And I started, say, I started thinking to myself, where was the church? Where was the church six months earlier when Child Protective Services, before they ever arrived to help her out and her daughter? Where was the church four years earlier as a single mother to love on her and to mentor her? Where was the church when she was a young girl before she was being abused and chewed up and spit out by all of these guys in the projects to love and mentor her and to minister to those guys as well? Where was the church when she was a little girl to help her mother and her mother's mother and help break out of this generational poverty with life on life? Where was the church on mission? Was it in the inner city or predominantly its mission in the outer city? To self, keeping the light, to self. Rolling hills, the church, the church is here. We are the church. Here's the church. We are the church to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Here is the church on mission to seek and to save the lost, to share the gospel and to display the gospel by loving people lavishly, uh, sowing the seeds of grace, just grace upon grace, loving everyone always. Here is the church to share the gospel, trusting God with the results, not withholding the gospel because we're afraid of the results, but we put feet to faith and we share the gospel and we live the gospel. Here is the church growing as a beautiful, diverse body, representative of what the church truly is, a kingdom of every tribe, people, and language praising God. Here is the church trusting God's word, going, making disciples of all nations. Here is our church on mission, reaching out everywhere we are, neighborhoods, where we live, where we work, here in the nations, here in Sylvan Park, Casey Homes, Skyview, wherever we are, especially remembering spending ourselves on behalf of the poor, lending to the Lord, and the Lord, he pays back when you do that. Growing up, we are to grow up because everyone here is a minister. 
everyone's a minister growing up in the faith, ministering to others and helping them grow up in the faith, those who come to faith and giving all. Sacrificial giving of your time, your talent, your treasure, which is actually God's after all. My heart's beating because of the will of God. I'm breathing because of the will of God. Everything is of God's. And we are his stewards after his likeness and his image to be used for his kingdom building activity. Rolling Hills, here's the church on mission. We are on mission. Let us pray. Lord God, we are so thankful for your word. We know your word is true. We know your word goes out, does not return to you void or empty. It accomplishes that, which is meant to do. I just pray that your word has done that in many ways today. And Lord, we know your word of God says that everyone who believes in Jesus will never, ever be put to shame. For there is no distinction, no difference between Jew and Gentile. No distinction anymore. We are all one of your family that we have the same Lord, the Lord who is, who is bestowing all the richly blessings upon us. For we know that everyone who calls on Jesus, everyone is saved. But how? How are they to call on the name of Jesus, your word says? How are they to call on Jesus whom they have not believed in? How can they believe in whom they've not heard? How can they hear unless someone preaching goes to them? How can anyone preach unless they are sent? Lord, send us. Send each and every one of us to live the gospel and to share the gospel and trusting you with the results, knowing that how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news and how beautiful, how amazing, how powerful your good news is.